Good evening. Hope everybody's having a wonderful Sunday. So thankful this morning, wonderful job that Philip did uh, in leading the two services this morning and so thankful for his talent and his ability to lead singing. Thankful for Clay and his willing to fill in and lead singing this morning. As you can guess, David has gone to El Salvador uh, with our other mission trip members and I encourage you to go to our website and check out the blog uh, on El Salvador. When I checked it just a little while ago, it was just one posting from yesterday that they had arrived there and were waiting on some other folks to get there and there was a couple of waves of our people and people from here going down there. And I encourage you to be mindful of that and uh, that's an awesome work and the preachers down there care so much about spreading the gospel to everyone. It's refreshing to visit with them and uh, be around them and so thankful for their hard work in doing it. So be mindful that hopefully this congregation can be started in the work that they're doing there. I don't know how many of you guys uh, ever had parents that kind of played jokes on you when you were younger and uh, my dad liked to kid with me and always set me up for something ridiculous or something funny. And when I was grade school age or so, we were going on a trip to Panama City, Florida. And I was an only child, so we were taking my older cousin with us so I would have some male companionship and probably so my parents didn't have to deal with me uh, very much. It could shuffle us off to the beach or whatnot. In those days, you know, you could let your kids go play at the beach by themselves. You have to worry about some knucklehead messing with your kids. But we were on the way down there, and of course we left Madison, we got on I-65, and he and I were, hey, when are we gonna get there about the time we got to the Brentwood exit, south of Nashville, ready to go, and he was looking for a way to calm us down, and he began to spin a story up that drew our attention for the rest of the eight hours of that trip, and it was a story about a legendary Indian who was angry with the white man for taking his land and depriving them of their native soil, and for the rest of his life, he had been patrolling the highways and byways of the United States, looking to take his revenge upon American tourists that were traveling up and down the interstate by throwing tomahawks and arrows and everything. And the name of this notorious villain was Chief Falling Rock. And so whenever we came upon a sign on the interstate that said, watch for Falling Rock, my dad said, you gotta be on the lookout because he may be along the bluffs, along the side of the road. And so my cousin and I would be plastered to the side windows. You know, we didn't wear seatbelts, you know. So we were plastered to the side windows looking out for Chief Falling Rock. Well, needless to say, every time I see one of those signs today, uh, I think about that joke and everything. And I haven't, Presley's not here tonight, so I'm gonna pull that on her sometime. She gets a little bit older, so she hadn't heard the joke in here. But that was a little bit of a lie and kind of some people say just a little bit of a fib to have fun with me. And you know, he never came clean about that. I had to figure that out on my own. But we, I figured out Tracy, when Tracy and I got married, she straightened it out for me. <laughs> but that was a little bit of a fib and he ought to be ashamed of himself. But as I was studying tonight, as you know, our mailbox reading, if you don't know, you need to read it, is in Romans chapters three and four for this week. If you want to be turning your Bibles to Romans chapter three, we're gonna be starting there tonight and looking at our lesson. And as I thought about the two groups that Paul is discussing in this letter to the church at Rome, it's primarily aimed at two different groups of people that were already Christians. And that was the Jews that had converted to Christianity and the Gentiles that had converted to Christianity. And as we see so often in Paul's epistles, we saw a lot of it in Galatians, that the Jews were trying to influence the Gentiles to obey some of the Mosaic law, or maybe even perhaps they looked a little differently at the Gentile Christians because they weren't privileged children of Abraham and had not had the law throughout their history. And at this time that we're looking at, the Jews had had the law for well over 1,200 years, uh, had the law of circumcision even longer than that. 
but they tended to maybe look down their nose a little bit at them, that they were a little bit inferior to them. And Paul straightens that out, especially when they're under Christ. And we'll look at that as we begin to do that. And as I was thinking about our lesson, I thought about two groups. And really in this world today, everybody in the whole world is either part of one group or the other. They're either part of one group that's clothed with Christ, that has put on Christ in baptism, and are living and walking in the light of Christ, or those who have never put on Christ in baptism, or those that have and have fallen away from it. The destination of the first group is a beautiful home in heaven where we'll glorify God for eternity. And the destination of the other group is weeping and gnashing of teeth in the fires of hell. And I think all too often sometimes we may cover the gospel up a little bit or we may kind of buffer it a little bit in that way that we don't talk very seriously about that. But if you're here tonight, I want you to think seriously about which group you're in. And I want you not to believe some lies. My dad kind of told me as a lie, as a joke. But our enemy, Satan, is busy lying to us. He tries to lie to Christians, and he's successful many times. He's also lying to those that are not Christians. And his lies are very sneaky, they're very subversive, they're sometimes difficult, and sometimes they're camouflaged where we can't tell what they are. The biggest ones, I think, for those of you that are in that group that maybe are not Christians, is the lie of procrastination and complacency that don't worry about it. You've got plenty of time to make that decision. And that's a lie in of itself. Folks, if Jesus Christ didn't know when his second coming was, do you think Satan knows? Do you think Satan knows how much time is left? Does he know that it's tomorrow or the next day or a thousand years from now? We don't know. One thing's for sure, none of us are promised to even live through tomorrow, much less know when his second coming is. That lie of complacency will find you one day maybe at death's door having not made the decision you need to make. And contrary to what some denominational people would teach, there's not going to be a second chance. Some people would teach that Jesus is going to come back, he's going to take those of his back to heaven, and there'll be another period of time in which people can make the decision to be saved. And that whole discussion to me is such an affront to the cross of Christ that you're going to get another chance, another chance, and another chance. And those are taught by religious people that don't want anybody to hear the truth and the matter of the fact that if you die tomorrow and you're not a Christian, hell is gonna be your destination. There's nothing that you can make up about that. So I want us to think tonight, as you're sitting there, don't procrastinate that decision. If it's a decision, what you need to make. If it's something you need to study more about, if it's something you wanna learn more about, you can come forward in a little while we have an invitation asked to study about that. We have people that will stay with you after service. If you don't feel comfortable coming forward, we can have elders and ministers meeting in the library after services tonight that people be glad to talk to you. Don't put off studying about that decision. In Romans chapter 3, we see a group of verses in Romans 3, 21 through 26 that we quote a lot from verse 23. And I think we quote a lot out of context. But I want to read 21 through 26. The preface to this is indeed that all are under sin outside of Christ, be they Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, whoever they are. And that's still true today. But there's also a truth today that there are some Christians that are struggling with sin. And if they continue in that struggle without seeking help and receiving help, they will fall away. And we'll read some verses in Hebrews about that. But in Romans chapter three, starting with verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law was revealed 
being, witnesses, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's interesting if you think about that verse and we quote a lot, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's true for people inside the church and people outside the church. And all too often we quote that in kind of a sympathetic way to say, I know that you're not a Christian yet, but don't worry, we've all sinned and we've all fell short of the glory of God. And that's true. But in this context, he's talking about people that have converted to Christianity who were sinners and fell short of the glory of God. Because see what he says in verse 22, to all and on all who believe. And then in 24, he describes those that have sinned and fall short as being justified freely by his grace. Just because we've become Christians does not mean we have a fire insurance policy that we can just do whatever we want to for the rest of our lives and not obey Christ's commandments, not fulfill the spirit of his law by obeying commandments, by showing compassion, by being merciful, by being kind, by producing those fruits of the spirit that we see in Galatians, that we're okay, we've been baptized and we're all right. Even if we start to dabble in a little bit of sin and we get caught up in a little bit of it and whatever that may be, that we've got a fire insurance policy and that's simply not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures do not teach a once saved, always saved doctrine. It doesn't exist. We see time and time again that you can fall away and fall short of that. Who did God send the gospel for? Who did he send it? He sent it for everyone, to all, because all have sinned. And it's to all who believe in the gospel of Christ that this generous gift that he's talked about, when it says justified freely, that word means to say not guilty, that you are innocent, that the punishment that you deserve, the wrath of God will not be metered upon you. And that word freely has its roots in the word sacrifice. The Greek word there can be translated as a gift and the root of it is a sacrifice. And that sacrifice that we have is through Jesus Christ. And I think about the word righteousness that we see time and time again mentioned here. And there's a lot of different translations of the Greek word righteousness and I may not be translating this right or seeing its right context and I'll get John Michael to straighten me out Monday if that's the case. But I think the use of it here means equitable justice. That God's righteousness is that he is an equitable judge to all people. No matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, no matter what sin has been in your life, he is an equitable judge. If you accept and obey the commandments that I'm giving you about salvation, how you can obtain it through my son, Jesus Christ, then you can be saved, that there is salvation. The gospel that we see in Romans chapter one, it is the power of God to salvation, the gospel. And everyone that accepts that and walks in the light and maintains that walk in his commandments can have a home in heaven with me. But if you do not, no matter what your background is, no matter what great amount of sin or little amount of sin, no matter if your debt to God is high or low, great or small, your punishment will be the same. Doesn't make any difference for these folks. He said, just because you're Jews and you have the law and you're sons of Abraham, it doesn't make any difference that you're all the same. You're all under sin and doing those things. 
We see the word fall short here, and that word in that sense means almost like I was running a race, and before I got to the finish line, before I could achieve that goal that we can never reach of God's glory, which is perfection, we fall short. I kind of think picture it myself. If I was running a one-mile race, I'd probably fall short of the goal. I'd probably fall short of that. We can't achieve that. And everybody has fallen short of that in that sense. And we know that Paul has such a passion for the Jews to accept the gospel. He even talks about in the scriptures that he would give himself, give up maybe his own salvation if they would just accept that message. Folks, we have to accept that message. We don't need to procrastinate anymore. We don't need to be complacent about it if you haven't become a Christian. And if you have become a Christian, we cannot be complacent about our lives. Satan will tell you the lie of it's okay to just be a backseat Christian, to just come and follow the rules even. I'm gonna show up to church, I'm gonna take the Lord's Supper, I'm gonna sing the songs, I'm gonna go through the motions. I may even be a teacher of Bible class. But how many times did Jesus say, and he says in the Sermon on the Mount, people go come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he's gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. Folks, we have to be on guard against Satan's lies. I tell the folks in jail, Satan's doesn't after you until you become a Christian, but he'll tell you lies as you are a Christian in doing that. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. We kind of see this passion in the first four verses of chapter 10 that Paul has. And I think we all as Christians, when we're thinking about sharing the gospel with people, I'm being so blatantly honest tonight because I feel like sometimes we're not blatantly honest about that, that we cushion it. And brothers and sisters, if you'll look at the numbers of the members of Christ Church in the United States today, we are doing a pitiful job of evangelism. We're not even 1% of the makeup of the United States' population according to surveys even done by Churches of Christ. But Paul has an earnest desire and we should have an earnest desire for people to come to know. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And keep plugging in that equitable justice. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the culmination of the law and he's the embodiment of the law. Remember what he said, the two greatest commandments were on the law and the prophets hang all these things that we'll love the Lord our God and that we'll love our neighbor. He is that embodiment. He lived that out, that servitude. I invite you sometime, I know it's not the most exciting reading in the world, but spend some time in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and just see what the old law, the Torah says. All of it, all of it has to do with your relationship with your fellow man and your relationship with God and how important that is. God was setting up a society that was supposed to treat each other equitably. I think about from the Gentile side point of view and over in Acts chapter 17, in setting the stage in Acts chapter 17, Paul's on his second missionary journey and he is in the great city of Athens. And if you know anybody knows anything about history, that Athens was a magnificent city, a center of religion, of world culture, of philosophy. And there was men sitting at a meeting place known as the Areopagus, which means the rock of Aries. Some of your Bibles may say Mars Hill because Mars is the equivalent Roman God to the Greek God of Aries of war. And interestingly enough, in ancient Athens, this was a meeting place where a group 
of Athenian elders and people met to discuss the business of the city, and that group was known as the Ecclesia, which is what we see a lot of times translated church in the New Testament. But he was meeting there with us, and he had noticed in his travels that they had all these statues of different gods, and one of them had a statue that said to an unknown God here that we've got, we don't know who this God is, but we're sure there's another one. We're gonna be sure that we worship him so we don't miss him. And Paul begins to explain who that is as he was going through there, and he talks about, hey, there was a God that made the whole world. He created everything, and there was a God who made from one blood all the nations, and he set their boundaries and everything, and he kept talking to him. and then he says in 29 of chapter 17, therefore, since we're the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising, not an idol, but he says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands man everywhere to repent. Man everywhere. He is in Greece. He is among Gentiles and calling them. We see this referred to as this time of ignorance. The time of ignorance is over. You know tonight if you're sitting there that unless you think I'm lying to you and the scriptures are full of lies that there was a man named Jesus Christ that came in human flesh that was the embodiment of God on earth and he died on the cross to pay a penalty for the sins that you owe to God, that you can't pay, that he bore for you, and that he resurrected from the dead so that you can have eternal life through a relationship with him for the rest of your life. That's the gospel, that's the good news. And I don't have every gospel sermon that was preached by Paul or Philip or Peter and John, but if we look at the one that Peter preached on Acts chapter two, it was about a three and a half minute sermon that he started out with and people were already repentant and ready to be baptized. Satan can trick us in even fewer words. If we think back all the way to Genesis chapter three, probably the best and well-known story in the Bible amongst Christians and outside the church is when Adam and Eve sinned. It took Satan less than 45 words in the King James, New King James Version of the Bible to convince Eve to disobey a God that had given her a commandment to says, don't eat, you can eat all the trees in the garden, but don't eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she even added, we don't know if God gave it to her, if Adam gave it to her, said don't eat of it, don't even touch it. There's a Jewish legend that the serpent who was walking upright at that time, or at least on all fours, because he wasn't yet crawling on his belly, shoved Eve back into the tree. And she said, look, you didn't die. Now, that's not in the Bible, but it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. You didn't die. See, God's lying to you. But what we know in the Bible is God, he said, God didn't want you to eat that tree because you'll be like him. Being able to know all things. You won't surely die. That's all it took. That's all it took for a people that lived in paradise who didn't have sickness or pain or death or even children to deal with. And they yet were led astray by just a few words. Just like James chapter one tells us, when we're tempted, we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. It's our own fleshly desires that cause us to do that. You're no longer ignorant of that. We have the scriptures before us to teach us that lesson. And I pray that you won't leave here tonight ignorant of that fact, or if you're ready to be baptized, that you won't leave here without becoming a Christian tonight. Folks, it's imperative. It's an imperative thing tonight because the destination is a horrible, disgusting, and dark place that the rich man and the story of rich man and Lazarus begged just for a drop of water on his tongue to relieve his pain and begged him to go back and tell his family, don't come to this place, do something different than coming here. And what a horrible and dark place it was. 
For those of us that are Christians, we have to pay attention to what Hebrews 5 has to say in the beginning of chapter 6. I know every time you guys hear me talk, you hear me harp and harp on Bible study. Folks, it's all we've got to know the mind of God and what we're supposed to do. If you don't study your Bible, Satan will have his way with you. And that's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5 as it concludes a difficult teaching that a Hebrew writer is trying to get across about a comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ as being a priest king. He says in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. You've regressed in your spiritual maturity. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And here's the key. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. There is no other way that I know of in the scripture that it says to discern good and evil, to train your senses by constant use of them by the scripture. Is worship important? Absolutely, it's commanded. Is prayer important? It's commanded and God longs to hear it. He gave his son to be a mediator between us and him, to take our petitions before him. The Holy Spirit takes them with groanings we can't even understand. But without Bible study, you cannot have your senses trained. We look at 2 Timothy chapter three, what does it say? All scripture's good, it's profitable, it's God-breathed, it's useful, so that the man of God can be equipped for every good work is what verse 17 goes. You can't be equipped any other way. And as he goes on in chapter six, we see what's important about us as Christians who have already decided. We've talked a little bit about those who have not decided yet. And you may be sitting there thinking about that decision tonight. Don't think because you've become a Christian and you've slid into sin and it's become habitual. Not that you're walking in the light anymore, but that you're walking in darkness and we have no fellowship with him like 1 John chapter one says. We see here in chapter six, and I believe too often we cushion this scripture up quite a bit, but I don't believe that God cushions it at all. When he says in 6.4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. We see in Galatians, the deeds of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit contrasting. We see that same thing here. Are you gonna bring forth herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated? Are you gonna bear thorns and briars? Because if you're bearing thorns and briars, then you are rejected and near to being cursed. And a lot of different scholars and commentaries on these verses say, well, it says impossible here, but nothing's impossible with God. And that's correct. We know that from Jesus' teaching about the camel and the eye of the needle. But I don't believe that somebody who progresses so far as to lose their faith in Christ Jesus completely and crucify him again, it may very well indeed be impossible for you to come back. And we should be in fear of that in doing that. But there is good news. I don't mean to be all negative tonight. But I think sometimes we should be pointed in what we say. If you are a Christian and you're giving your life over to sin, 
Satan's lying to you and you say, it's okay, God's going to keep forgiving you and keep forgiving you and keep forgiving you. You can continue to do that, but that's just simply not true. In Hebrews chapter 10, just flip over a few pages in 26, it says, for if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Folks, we can't pretend like we continue to dabble in the devil's playground and it's not going to affect us spiritually and then we're not going to digress. If you've caught up in sin that you cannot get off of you and it's taken over your life and destroyed your faith in God, you have fallen away. And Satan's going to lie to you and he's going to tell you that there's nobody here at Mount Jewett that cares about that and there's nobody here that can help you recover from that. that there's nobody here that can fill Galatians chapter six that is spiritual and it can help you restore you in meekness and gentleness back to a path. There's nobody in this audience certainly that can restore you to the Lord's church. If you fall away, God puts in, God takes out, and God can put back in. But it's a lie. And if people are telling you that lie, then they're agents of the devil himself to say that there's nobody here that can help you or is willing to help you confess your sins and restore you to a righteous walk. I know at least two dozen men that I could call up any given time and they would come to my house at all hours of the night and talk to me and try to help me spiritually. Without a doubt, they'd put down what they were doing and come and help do that. And I don't know that many people. If you think you're in that situation, you don't think there's anybody here, you come talk to one of us ministers or elders and we'll put you with people or we'll help you ourselves. But don't believe Satan's lies. And don't believe the outside world's lies that you don't need the help of the church. There's nobody here that can help you get off of that and get away from that sin. It will destroy you if you stay in it. In Hebrews chapter 10, again, we see in 26 through 31, we just read 26. He says, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy to who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God will judge his people. Jesus will sit as a righteous judge of his people. And if we think that we're immune because we're Christians, maybe that we think we're Christians, that we can sin and go on sinning, and even as a congregation, I'm so thankful that we're not this way, but if we ever got this way, that just because we have a name on a sign out front that God would spare us if we fell back into sin, in a life of sin, that's not true. We see God's people punished in the Bible when they didn't do what he says. When the Assyrians came in 722 BC and carted off the northern kingdom, I can tell you this much right now, I'm not gonna bore you with ancient history that you know I like, but if there is one group of people in the eighth century that you did not want to show up at your doorstep and haul you away into captivity, it was the Assyrians because they probably got led away buck naked in shackles run down the road, not just taken away and, and put in little bitty groups and taken and fed real well. They were taken into absolute slavery and treated worse than we would treat any animal today. And then we see the southern kingdom later on in the sixth century punished because they fall away from God. God didn't spare Sodom, but he saved righteous Lot, the Bible tells us about. God didn't spare the world of Noah, but he saved righteous Noah. 
And folks, God's not going to spare this world. The Bible tells us everything around us is going to be burned up in fire. But he will save the righteous remnant, just like Noah and just like Lot and just like the remnant that returned from Babylon in captivity because they weren't all evil. We had good men that we study in the Bible like Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were still loyal to God even after they got deported in captivity. We have the prophets that still were righteous and trying to turn their people back. God's going to save a righteous remnant out of this world. And unfortunately, Jesus says that the gate is very wide that leads to destruction and very narrow that leads to heaven and eternal life. But we as Christians sharing the gospel, God will make that gate just as wide as we can get people through. And it's wide enough for you. There's nothing that you've done in your life that you've committed as sin or committed against other people or against God that God can't forgive you for. God loved the world. That's why he gave his only begotten son so that none should perish but all have eternal life. Don't think that you're not, there's no worthy enough to come to church. There's no worthy enough to be saved. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches how joyous the one who was forgiven of a great debt was when he was forgiven of his debt. And I'm gonna ask you tonight, do you have debt that you need to be forgiven of? Do you have sins in your life that you need to get rid of? Do you need to study with someone? Do you need to understand what it means when we talk about putting your Lord on in baptism or becoming a Christian, what the Bible has to say about that? I urge you, do not hesitate tonight. There are godly men and women that will be loved to study with you and love to help you. If you're a Christian and you've slidden back into a life of sin and you're fearful of the judgment and the impossibility discussed in Hebrews chapter six, don't let it go too far. Don't get beyond the capability of coming back because that's where Satan's going to drag you off, enticing you with your own desires and telling you to procrastinate and be complacent about what's in your life. I urge you to think about that tonight, folks. You're not promised that you'll make it home tonight. We're not promised that Christ won't return in the middle of the night or tomorrow morning or whenever it is and you're not promised to take another breath at all. Life is short. We have those brothers and sisters among us who've gone on to be in home with heaven. And I'm thankful the ones that have made that decision. Don't regret it tonight because your regret is eternal. If there's anything that we can